Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review a model of the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 32 in our series of 2021. And today's date is Friday, September the 10th. First, I'll be talking to Karen Vivarelli, successful local businesswoman and virtual assistant who is coaching others on how to thrive working for yourself at home and who has been named a finalist for the 2021 Oz Mumpreneur Awards. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake about how Australia will fare in this recession. But now, let's talk to Karen Vivarelli. Karen, how did you become a virtual assistant? So I started um, as a virtual assistant back in 2015 when I was working in a, a legal firm as a personal assistant and executive assistant to the partner there. But when I was pregnant with my second baby, I was made redundant. They claimed they didn't know that I was pregnant, but the office manager did know. And I saw that as a sign to get out of my office, my job, my nine to five job and start exploring flexible working from home opportunities because, you know, I was a mum with my second baby and I just needed to, you know, have a bit more flexibility in my working. So I pretty much just researched I heard it from a friend of a friend who was a virtual assistant and I called her. It was, wasn't very well known back then at all. And she told me what she was doing and I thought, well, I can do that. And so I just started DIYing everything myself, learning, researching it. And then I just started setting up my own website. I started doing my own social media posts, creating my own packages, setting everything up from scratch pretty much and figuring out because there wasn't that many people doing it. And yeah, from my first social media post, which was on Facebook, I got two clients and then the rest was history. It just took off from there. And it was something that I really loved because it was very creative and I didn't realize I was an entrepreneur until I started doing this. It was just, yeah, it's just, I absolutely love it. Obviously didn't have any training. It was all completely DIY. Yeah. So I had my admin background, my legal background, obviously as a personal assistant, which is a great background to have. And I've been in finance industry. And so that in itself was enough to, and I I loved graphic design, like DIY graphic design. I'm not a designer, but, but, and I can figure anything out and I'm very tech savvy. So with that combination, I was able to just figure, figure it out on my own. And yeah, I just um, went for it basically and um, started, as soon as I started working with clients, I started learning the tech tools that they were using in their business to run their online business. And I just really increased my knowledge with every client. And yeah, that's how it started. I I started from not knowing anything. What opportunities are there for people to become virtual assistants? Yeah, well, there's so many opportunities. For instance, you know, we're just working from home, having the flexibility and freedom to work when you like to be able to set your own hours. And for mums especially, they can work when their kids are at school or at daycare or maybe it's only at night because they have their kids um, during the day. So there is that flexibility. They can choose where they want to work, whether that's from the comfort of their own home or a cafe or, you know, the beach. It really does, you know, it's that laptop lifestyle where you can work wherever you want to work. And you're a business owner, so you can, you're a sole trader usually. So and you, you, you're your own boss and you can work with anyone around the world. So you're not limited to 
where you live. Obviously, because you're working virtually online with anyone who has a business, who runs a business that's online. So you can really choose what rate you want to charge and you can increase your rates at any time and you can take time off when it suits you. You don't have to ask your boss when you can take holidays or, you know, obviously you don't get paid for sick days, but you still have that flexibility to just work to fit around your own lifestyle and the, the best one is, you know, not having to commute to and from work. And, you know, just it's just having the opportunities to work with amazing businesses as well. So, you know, anything from photographers or graphic designers, coaches, as well as any industry, you don't, you're not limited to your experience because there's so many online businesses that need help with their admin and running their business you can then decide, well, what is it that I personally love? Maybe it is photography and and you can help a photographer who needs to run their business online, like could be their website, their social media, you know, their clients, and you can do that virtually. So, And the issue too is with the pandemic, uh, you can, there's more scope for people to become virtual assistants now. Yeah, uh, there it, would be more demand for virtual assistants because no one's going into an office anymore. That's right. It's really everything's been flipped, and um, we now need to work from home. And this is the perfect opportunity to do that virtual assistant. And virtual assistant is a broad term as well. It's not just admin. It's not just like a personal assistant or a secretary. You know, it could be you're doing the social media aspect of someone's business and their email marketing and managing their website, podcasts. There's there's podcast VAs who specialize in launching and helping you create and publish your podcast. So, you know, it's just whatever you, you do in your business, there's a VA to help you do that. And not not two any two VAs are the same in what they offer. So it is, yeah, it's an incredible time um, now to become a virtual assistant and be able to, yeah, work from home and, and not be limited by having to go into an office. It's really the way of the future. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. What's interesting is uh, there's so much to learn. I mean, you're actually picking up skills in areas like, say, social media, in areas like marketing, uh, mm-hmm. like uh, electronic direct mail, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, there's so many skills. And the way to learn this now is through online learning and online courses like my virtual assistant Kickstarter course. And I've also got, you know, there's people that specialise in helping you learn about email marketing or how to launch a podcast 
how to launch a business like I do and the tech tools that go along with running a business. I also have a course on that and as well as social media, you can pick that up and learn that quite easily and decide, okay, I want to be a social media manager. I've done this, this course and help other business owners who don't have the time for their social media and don't have the time to really learn what digital marketing strategies are. So your Kickstarter course does what? So it teaches women uh, how to set up their online business, the foundations of their online business from scratch, so from nothing. So they decide, okay, I want to be a virtual assistant. And so I'm like, okay, well, first up, you need to set up your, your business properly, which is the financials, it's the website, it's your social media to, so that clients can find you. It's, it's how to onboard clients and find clients. And so it's a lot of strategy in there as well and how to work with clients as well as the skills that you need like, and the tools, the tech tools that you need to work with clients. So it's really setting up their business foundations and teaching them how to become a virtual assistant all in one. It's an it's a eight week uh, online course together with group coaching calls and personal reviews with a small group of women. So yeah, it's it's a life changing course to be honest. Women have gone from being made redundant or losing their jobs in the pandemic or you know having to change and then. They have, yeah, started working online as a virtual assistant and replaced their, you know, usual income with, you know, money in their business and they can then not be stressed about being home with the kids or, you know, having to get a job. It's just, it really is life-changing, this course. And your online tech tools course as well? Yeah, so that is essential tech tools that people need to know to run their business. And so it's like you can upskill yourself in all the things the online tech tools. Um, Such as what are the tech tools? Um, so it's like Kajabi, which is a course platform, course and membership platform. It's also an email marketing platform all in one and it's podcast platform as well, as well as ConvertKit, um, MailChimp, which are the email marketing platforms. We've got, you know, how to get organised, we have, what other tools are there? Like Asana, so a project management tool, um, Trello to really get organized with your tasks and project management. There's also contracts and privacy tools and resources, as well as Dubsado, which is a client relationship management system, um, as well as a Google suite. So this is really for service-based businesses, as you can see, as well as graphic design, Canva. I think everyone knows what Canva is. And web design and social media tools, so many things, but the essentials that you need to know to get started in the online space. Well, uh, the beautiful part about this is you can work anywhere in the world. I mean, you could be living in Sydney or Melbourne or whatever, and you could get a client in New York City. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's not limited to where you you live. You can work with anyone and the people that join my VA Kickstarter course, they are all over the world and it's incredible to connect people in this way. And, and what's great about the times, you know, the time difference in America, the VA in Australia can be doing the work and by the time the person in America wakes up, all of their work is completed. <laughs> so that, that's a benefit as well. So uh, do you see more people going into it? Yes, absolutely. It's taking off. It's really popular and as a career choice, because of just the freedom and flexibility it provides, it's just 
No one wants to do that long commute. No one wants to, you know, not know what's happening with, you know, the pandemic and how that's changing things. So it's 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 about exploring these online options, which there's so many online businesses that do need support in their business. So it's it's just it's the way of the future, I think. And very much also about empowering women yes. who set up their own businesses. Yes, we need. that's right. Yes. So quite often I have a lot of women saying I'm, I've been on maternity leave. I'm, I need to go back to my job. And, you know, their employer is saying, well, you need to come back to this full-time job that you left, you know, before having kids and they just, an employer won't be flexible. So they're just looking at a different option where they can have that flexibility to be around their kids, not miss out on their kids' milestones and events that are happening and yeah, work from home and have that flexibility that suits them and not their employer. So yeah, and they're usually very, don't have much confidence in um, their skills. And once they do this course and realize it's for, it's also for them, it's also like empowering them. They're learning something for them, even though they've got kids, they're doing it for them. And they're, they're such great workers because it's just gives them the uh, that confidence that they need and they they love it so yeah it really is empowering them and I'm, I'm really proud of what I've achieved well Karen that's quite extraordinary and thank you so much for your time thank you so much Leon and now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake so let me start off by saying uh sorry since we've avoided a recession so far with our growth up 0.7 percent but it doesn't feel that way to people of Melbourne and Sydney Well, whether you think we've avoided a recession or not depends on whether you accept the widely quoted rule of thumb that defines a recession as two or more consecutive quarters of negative real GDP growth. Now, that rule of thumb was something coined by an economist named Julius Shishkin, who was commissioner of one of America's many statistics bureaus in an interview with the New York Times in August 1974. And in the United States, it actually has no status whatsoever. Recessions in the United States are delineated by an academic body that has the, in today's language, curious title of Business Cycle Dating Committee. And it formally determined last month that the recession which began in the US in March 2020 ended in April 2020. In other words, it only lasted two months, although it was the deepest recession that the US had had since the Great Depression of the 1930s. But they say quite explicitly that whether there are two or more quarters in a row of negative GDP growth has nothing to do with whether there's a recession. In the Australian context, where we don't have any such equivalent of the US's Business Cycle Dating Committee, journalists and many economists do use this rule of thumb to delineate recessions. But if you look back through history, for example, the recession of 1974, which everyone acknowledges was a recession, didn't have consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. In fact, there was only one in that quarter, although it was a fairly big one. Uh, Most people don't remember the recession of 1977, when there were consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth in the September and December quarters of that year, but nobody seriously thinks that was a recession. Or to illustrate it in a different way, imagine if the bushfires that ravaged southeastern Australia in late December 2019 and early January 2020 hadn't happened, 
March quarter 2020 GDP would probably have been a small positive rather than the minus 0.4% that it actually was. If the bushfires not having happened, we then had a contraction of real GDP of 7% in the June quarter, which we did as a result of the nationwide lockdowns, followed by two plus threes in the September and December quarters of last year. Would anyone seriously have said that last year wasn't a recession because there was only one quarter of negative growth, even though that one quarter of negative growth was larger than the sum of the two recessions in the early 1980s and early 90s. In other words, it's just a silly and lazy rule. I think a better one is if the unemployment rate rises by one and a half percentage points or more in 12 months or less, that's something that has much more meaning to ordinary people who understandably probably wouldn't recognize a quarter of negative real GDP growth if they fell over it in the street. And it's one that accurately picks out every period that really was a recession in the last 60 years without giving any false signals as the rule of thumb about consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth does. Now, in the current context, you do have to be careful using the unemployment rate because the unemployment rate has been affected by the support that governments are giving to people displaced by the pandemic. There are as of July, almost 400,000 people in Australia, mainly in New South Wales and Victoria, who were officially counted as employed, even though they didn't work any hours. In the US and Canada, most of those people would be classified as unemployed, but here in Australia, we call them employed. If you add those to the official tally of unemployed, and also make an adjustment for the people who've dropped out of the workforce over the last couple of months because they've either not been allowed out actively to look for work or haven't seen any point in actively looking for work, then the effective unemployment rate has risen from a low of 5.7% in May to 8% in June, July. Uh, that's an increase of 2.3 percentage points, which more than satisfies my definition. And that effective rate of unemployment will almost certainly have risen further in August, as we'll find out later this month when the August Labor Force Survey data are released. So I would say that even though we may well avoid consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, given that the June quarter turned out to have shown an increase of 0.7. And provided the lockdowns in New South Wales and Victoria do end before the end of October, so we'll see a rebound in activity once people are allowed out. In my view, the Australian economy is in a recession today. And the difference between the recession that we're in today and the one we had in the June quarter of last year is that whereas the one we had last year was one that in Paul Keating's notorious phrase, we had to have, because given the lack of knowledge at the time as to what the virus would do, and as to when we might get a safe and effective vaccine, there really was no alternative to locking down in the way that we did. And those countries that thought there was an alternative, like Sweden, or the United States or the United Kingdom, found out the hard way that not only did they get worse health outcomes as a result of not locking down, but they also got worse economic outcomes than countries which locked down, such as Australia and New Zealand did. But the recession we're in now, 
by my definition, is one we didn't have to have. It's one that we're having because of the failures of the Morrison government with regard to vaccinations, a failure to ensure an adequate supply of vaccines that people were willing to take, the failure to correct miscommunication about the risks associated with a vaccine that we had put undue reliance on, the AstraZeneca one, the unwillingness of the government to confront what is the highest rate of vaccine hesitancy in the industrialized world, partly I suspect because the government thinks that those anti-vaxxers are concentrated in the ranks of its own supporters, and also failures by the Berejiklian government in New South Wales, in particular to learn lessons from the Ruby Princess debacle and to mandate masks and vaccinations for people conveying incoming flight crew to their hotel quarantine and then failing despite what they say, to act on the health advice, to lock down early, to lock down lightly when the virus struck in suburbs that support members of the present government, and then to lock down much more harshly when it struck poorer suburbs in the western and southwestern parts of Sydney. Uh, this recession is one we didn't have to have, but we are having because of conscious, bad policy choices by the federal and the New South Wales government. The best that can be said is that the federal and state governments' fiscal policy responses to the mistakes that were made with regard to health dimensions has been broadly appropriate. And I feel confident that when the lockdowns do eventually end, we'll see a fairly strong rebound in spending and economic activity, just as we did after the nationwide lockdown ended in July last year, and the lockdowns that Victoria in particular has endured over the period since then have ended, followed by strong rebounds in economic activity and spending. So you're saying that while the rest of the year is going to look pretty bleak, when the economy does finally open up, hopefully by the end of the year, hopefully by the end of October, uh, things will rebound, which would mean that 2022 will be a lot stronger economically. Well, I certainly think that provided the lockdown ends by, say, late October, there will be a sufficient rebound in spending as people are let out again uh, to avoid a second consecutive quarter of negative real GDP growth in the December quarter, although again I emphasise that doesn't mean we won't have been in the recession in the interim. But because the federal and state governments are providing adequate support to workers who haven't been able to go to work and earn a wage, and to businesses who might otherwise give up and go bankrupt, and because since February last year households have managed to sock away $167 billion of additional bank deposits, which are sitting there to spend. And because at least until June next year, Australians are still not going to be allowed to go overseas and spend the roughly 50 billion per annum that they had been spending overseas before the walls went up in March last year. Uh, and instead have been spending that in various ways at home. Um, I think we will see quite a strong rebound in spending. Now, how 
long that translates into a more lasting economic recovery as 2022 unfolds does depend importantly on whether the opening up is uniform or whether states like Queensland and Western Australia have been much more dilatory about vaccinating their populations than New South Wales and Victoria now have been, for example, whether they choose to exclude themselves from the opening up of the rest of the country, whether the federal government responding to evidence that closing the borders is popular with a lot of voters decides to delay opening up until after the election, which may not be held until as late as May of next year, uh, depending on whether there are any lingering uncertainties that flow from the result of that election, if it turns out to be close. Um, and of course, depending on what happens to the global economy, including our deteriorating relations with our most important trading partner, uh, all of those things are potential headwinds for the Australian economy that we'll have to navigate in order to get through 2022. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And of course, we've got other headwinds overseas with the American economy and... Uh to Europe's economy as well. Well, yes, although I think the American economy will be doing reasonably well because of the amount of fiscal stimulus that's being applied to it by the Biden administration, assuming it's able to get the legislation that implements that stimulus through the Congress, which is by no means guaranteed. Uh, Europe probably will end up being a bit of a drag on the global economy, but Europe isn't particularly important as an export market for Australia. The concern that we must have with regard to international trade is the ongoing deterioration in our bilateral relationship with our most important trading partner that has seen exports of all but a handful of commodities drop by between 50 and 100%. And in the case of one where we're still selling lots of stuff, that is iron ore, uh, the price has come down by almost 40% as a result of the Chinese ordering its steel mills to cut their production, ostensibly as an environmental measure, but who knows whether it's also intended to inflict additional pain on Australia. The other thing that we potentially have to worry about, if not in 2022, then perhaps over the two or three years following that, is the risk that Australia becomes seen as something of an international pariah because of our intransigence on reducing carbon emissions, such that Australia's exports to countries like the United States and Europe, but also Japan and Korea, 
be subject to what they call carbon tariffs, that is additional levies imposed by those countries on imports from countries which are perceived not to be pulling their weight in reducing CO2 emissions. And Australia is a prime candidate for being singled out in that way. So uh, we are by no means certain that uh, 2022 will look up. Okay. Well, I think we I think we will see positive growth. I, I, I'm not worried that we'll see a third recession at this stage in 2022, unless, for example, there is another uncontrolled outbreak of the virus that forces governments to lock down again, notwithstanding the fact that hopefully more than 80% of us will have been vaccinated. But rather, I think that by contrast with the last 12 months, when Australia has had one of the best performing economies of the advanced world. You know, we are, along with New Zealand, one of very few economies where both the level of economic activity and the level of employment is higher than it was prior to the onset of the pandemic. I think by the time we get to this time next year, our performance relative to that of our peer group won't look as good as it does at the moment. Right, and all up, you would say that the formal definitions of recessions are meaningless and useless in a pandemic. Well, in any circumstances, whether it's a pandemic or not, the idea that a recession is only defined by consecutive quarters of negative growth in real GDP is, as I said before, both lazy and silly, and a more meaningful and a more accurate definition of a recession is one when the unemployment rate rises by, in the Australian context, I'd say one and a half percentage points or more in 12 months or less. In some other economies, you might have different parameters, but defining a recession in terms of people's experience of unemployment is, I think, both more accurate and more meaningful, including to the vast majority of the population who aren't economists or statisticians, than one that's based on consecutive quarters of negative growth in real GDP. Well, Saul, Les Lake, those are sobering thoughts, and uh, thank you very much for your time. You're more than welcome, Leo. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, News Corp's Australian outlets are set to launch a campaign urging the world's leading economies to embrace a target of net zero emissions by 2050, to be fronted by columnist Joe Hildebrand. Far from being a shift from the company's traditional opposition to climate action, this campaign is further proof that Rupert Murdoch's empire is not really committed to the change. The details of the campaign show it's even smaller than it first appears. It's just a two-week campaign in October by News Corp Papers and Sky News next month to nudge Australia towards a carbon-neutral economy ahead of the UN's climate change conference in November, despite News Corp having attacked multiple federal government efforts to act on climate change since 2007. The Australian will be excluded from the campaign, and dissenting voices, a euphemism for the staunchest climate change denialists who inhabit many of its top perches, will be expected to reframe their arguments. A story which appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald on Monday was timed to come out on the morning of News Corp's appearance in front of a Senate committee. And consumer confidence dropped 1.8% last week as COVID-19 caseloads remained elevated in New South Wales and Victoria, according to the ANZ Roy Morgan survey. And the Reserve Bank of Australia maintained official interest rates at their record low of 0.1% and said it will push on with its plan to gradually reduce the size of its quantitative easing program, pinning its hopes on a strong economic recovery once COVID-19 lockdowns come to an end. And Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe is betting the economy will bounce back once 80% of Australians are fully vaccinated, so long as governments stick to their pledge to reopen the economy. Dr Lowe believes the current sharp economic downturn will be temporary, 
from the New South Wales and Victorian lockdowns, which will only delay, not derail, the recovery. He says the economy will be growing again in the December quarter and is expected to be back around its pre-Delta path in the second half of next year. One factor that gives the RBA boss confidence is that most businesses are hanging on to staff during the current lockdowns. It was only two months ago that firms were complaining about skill shortages and being unable to hire enough workers. Even though the $88 billion JobKeeper wage subsidy no longer exists, Lowe will be comforted by a pre-Delta tight labour market encouraging firms to maintain links with staff during current lockdowns. The RBA is also relying on past lockdown experiences in Australia and overseas, where most people have gotten out and spent strongly when their home detentions end. And Telstra is proposing a mandate requiring about a third of its workforce to be fully vaccinated and has kicked off a week, one-week consultation period with staff, unions and partners ahead of in what will be one of corporate Australia's largest mandatory vaccination drives. Telstra is now the fourth company to mandate COVID-19 vaccinations, joining SPC, the first business to force employers to get the jab, Qantas and Australia's second biggest hospital operator, HealthScope. Telstra will consult staff about a new policy that will require workers who have regular in-person customer interactions to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 by mid-November. The policy would affect about 8,300 workers. Chief Executive Andy Penn said it was critical that staff get inoculated against the virus because so many Telstra technicians work with vulnerable communities or enter the home of customers. The mandate will also extend to workers in Telstra's retail stores, but not staff that can work from home. But the telco is facing potential legal challenges after Penn said in a letter to employees that those who refuse the vaccine may be forced into medical retirement. And major supermarket chains have launched a hiring blitz to bolster staff levels at distribution centres and stores, decimated by the fast-growing Delta outbreak in New South Wales and Victoria. Woolworths, Coles and Aldi have received another reprieve from public health orders requiring staff from 12 COVID-19 hotspots in Sydney to be vaccinated before they can work outside their local government areas. But staff shortages have led to mounting out-of-stock signs at supermarkets across New South Wales. Last week, more than 6,500 distribution centre and store staff employed by Woolworths, Coles and Aldi were first to isolate, exacerbating transport disruptions and contributing to growing gaps on supermarket shelves. Woolworths Chief Executive Brad Banducci said last week that more than 3,300 staff were in isolation, including 500 in distribution centres, while Coles Chief Operations Officer Matthew Swindles estimated that 1,800 staff in New South Wales and 1,200 in Victoria were isolating. Many of those staff have completed their isolation or have tested negative and returned to work, but retailers are busily recruiting new staff to bolster the ranks and provides flexibility for when more employers are inevitably forced to isolate. And financial intelligence regulator Austrac has assessed the four major banks as the highest risk for vulnerability and criminal exploitation of any banking institutions in Australia in a series of risk assessments published on Monday. The feared financial regulator says the criminal environment facing the banks is complex and extensive, exposing them to criminal behaviour ranging from tax evasion and drug trafficking to predicate offences that are part of other offences such as bribery and modern slavery. Austrac released four reports assessing the money laundering and terrorism financing risks facing the majors, smaller domestic banks, foreign subsidiary banks and foreign bank branches. The regulator said criminals were looking to exploit everything from foreign students and night deposit boxes to mobile apps and real estate transactions and it was on high alert for their next moves. Austrac said the level of risk in each subsector was largely proportional to its size with the big four responsible for 47 million customers, 73% of all assets, and about three-quarters of all suspicious matter reports. And support among Australia's superannuation funds for environmental, social and governance proposals has increased over the past four years, as the number of shareholder resolutions put forward at annual general meetings continues to rise. 
Australia's top 50 super funds voted in favour of various ESG shareholder proposals in 42% of instances last financial year, according to new research from the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility. Although that was down from 43% a year earlier, it was significantly up on the 34% figure released in 2017. There's been a rapid increase in the number of issues being put to shareholders which hit 32 resolutions last year, roughly triple the number of proposals in 2017. While the overall rate of support for ESG resolutions held largely steady over the past 12 months, there was an underlying rise in the number of resolutions being supported by union and employee-backed industry funds over that period. Just a handful of funds were responsible for this push. Vic Super, Cepus, Macquarie, Unisuper, Qantas Super, Care Super, Energy Super and Australian Super. However, public sector funds remain mostly likely to vote in favour of ESG proposals, while corporate funds were the least supportive. The funds most supportive of ESG proposals over the past four years were Local Government Super, supporting 76% of the proposals, HESTA, 65%, CBUS, 63%, Macquarie, 62%, NGS Super, 58%, MRSA, 54%, and Qantas Super, 50%. Country's biggest fund, Australian Super, voted in favour of ESG proposals 51% of the time. And climate change has been branded the biggest challenge of our times, and for chief executives, articulating exactly what they're doing about it is just as challenging, according to a new survey. ESG, or environmental, social and governance issues, are dominating most of the headspace of corporate leaders, according to KPMG's latest global survey of CEOs. According to KPMG's survey, 42% of the world's CEOs and 36% of Australia's bosses admitted they were struggling to articulate a compelling ESG story to their stakeholders. As investors nip at their heels, 70% of Australian CEOs say they're facing greater demand for ESG reporting and transparency. The KPMG survey of 1,300 CEOs across 12 countries found 84% of Australian chief executives and 75% of their global counterparts saying the UN Climate Change Conference in November must inject necessary urgency into the climate debate, underscoring that demand to demonstrate green credentials. Furthermore, 77% of bosses want another stimulus package from the government to turbocharge business climate change investments. And corporate net zero emissions commitments are on pace to hit a record level in Australia this year after a wave of announcements through earnings season reinforced the momentum from companies keeping pace with rivals and placating investors placing a premium on sustainability. The 34 companies in the S&P ASX 300 that pledged to net zero emissions since the start of the year to the end of August compares to 38 overall last year, according to Macquarie Group data, putting 2021 on track to be a banner year for corporate decarbonisation. Nearly a third of Australia's 300 largest listed companies have now committed to net zero emissions, with the large caps leading the charge. Now 54% of the S&P ASX 100 have declared their intent, or 38% of the S&P ASX 200, a number that stood at less than 10% in March last year. The fresh urgency across corporate Australia follows renewed momentum across among politicians and investors as research points to a quickening pace in global warming. And the loss of a fast-approaching September school holidays will wipe a further $6.9 billion off the tourism industry's slate, taking its losses from school holidays alone to $21.3 billion since December 2020. With most of the nation either in lockdown or immobilised by border restrictions, and Sydney and Melbourne set to be in lockdown through the September break, which starts from September the 18th for public schools in most states, tour operators are gearing up for yet another holiday flop. Many operators are facing the triple tourism hit. Consecutive school holidays crushed since December last year. The corporate market missing in action from cities for, for adrenaline and team building tours. And foreign cruise lines are out of play for almost 18 months. Financial modelling commissioned by the Tourism and Transport Forum from Stafford Strategy 
shows the September holidays normally generate $7.7 billion over the 14-day period. This year, it is estimated to yield only $770 million, 10% of the 2019 value. Modelling predicts visitation to be down by 90% nationwide, with New South Wales hurting most, losing $2.3 billion, followed by Victoria down $1.9 billion and Queensland down $1.6 billion. The figures assume regional Victoria remains open to those Australians permitted to travel, as has Queensland, Western Australia, South Australia, the Northern Territory, Tasmania and the ACT. Tourism supported 1.125 million direct and indirect jobs in 2019. That figure is now down to 665,000 tourism jobs and expected to drop to 515 jobs by the end of this month, representing a loss of 610,000 tourism jobs since the pandemic began. Before the pandemic, an average wedding party booking was for 80 to 120 people. Now it's from 50 to 70 guests. And consumers have been warned to brace for the highest food and grocery price increases in more than 10 years, as suppliers seek to recoup higher costs for commodities, packaging and freight. Investment bank Baron Joey says major suppliers have flagged mid-to-high single-digit price increases, the highest since 2009, as well as fewer promotions, less discounting and a step-up in shrinkflation as they pass on higher costs for key inputs such as wheat, sugar, edible oils, meat, eggs, dairy foods, aluminium and freight. Danone, for example, expects input costs to rise 8 to 9% in the December half. General Mills expects costs to rise 7% in 2021. And Unilever is preparing for inflation to be in the high teens. Coles and Woolworths have recently indicated they're likely to pass higher prices onto consumers rather than rejecting or absorbing them. And that's it for this week. And the next week, I'll be talking to Joseph Fartuli, Credit and Watch's CTO, connecting over 50,000 Australian businesses with sophisticated credit risk management tools to navigate the economic turbulence of 2021 by assessing the ability of the creditors to pay what they owe. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors economist Alex Joyner about the state of the economy. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.